Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation has become increasingly available as a tool in severe acute respiratory failure. However, its use remains restricted to high-level centres. So just when should regional intensive care practitioners refer their patients for ECMO? Dr. Sarah Allen is a cardiothoracic intensivist and anaesthetist at the Auckland City Hospital in New Zealand. Sarah has interests in echocardiography and mechanical circulatory support, and she joins me today to discuss this important issue. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Todd. Sarah, in broad brushstrokes, what are the primary indications for a referral for ECMO? So in broad brushstrokes, um, ECMO comes in two varieties, um, veno-arterial and veno-venous. Um, when we're thinking about respiratory support, both of those modalities will provide respiratory support. Um, veno-venous, purely respiratory support. Veno-arterial, respiratory and cardiac support. If I just focus down on respiratory failure alone and thinking of the veno-venous um, modality, then in broad brushstrokes, any respiratory failure that is not responsive to um, conventional medical therapies and is potentially reversible would be the very broad brushstrokes. And um, when we're talking about conventional medical therapies, we're talking about um, lung protective ventilation and then adjuncts to improve ventilation. Sarah, one of the biggest conundrums for a regional intensivist in this situation is when to start the dialogue with a tertiary referral centre that offers ECMO. What advice would you give regional intensivists? When should we start to think about making contact? So I think start um, start early. That would be the my first advice because an early conversation can um, set the framework for um, both the referring centre and the receiving centre um, understanding what kind of trajectory and triggers might be appropriate for that individual. Um, Generally, referral is appropriate when conventional ventilation strategies or therapies are proving insufficient, look like they may be insufficient, or that they're at such um, an extreme that they may cause more harm to the patient. Each area in Australia and New Zealand has some referral guidelines, um, and those, those local guidelines can be referred to. Um, but uh, we are talking about people with severe respiratory failure, um, so um, generally with very low um, inspired oxygen to arterial oxygen um, ratios um, or very high ventilation settings. It's not only oxygenation, though. Um, a small subset of patients are referred um, because of severe hypercapnia causing um, acidosis. Who's eligible for ECMO and who would you consider not eligible when you're taking the phone call from a regional centre? So broadly speaking, eligible patients are um, those within the local guidelines of age extremes, 
which in Australasia, certainly if you're under 60, you will be meeting those um, guidelines. If you're under 65, you will probably meet those guidelines. If you're under 70, you may meet those guidelines. And if you're over 70, it's unlikely um, that the benefit of ECMO would outweigh um, the, the risk of futility or harm. Um, so that's in terms of a very broad exclusion criteria. But as I said, I think a case-by-case discussion is quite important because age is a biological factor but doesn't always reflect physiologic reserve. Secondly, the as I mentioned already, the respiratory failure needs to be reversible or potentially reversible. Um, and um, that means it's generally acute respiratory failure. Um, when we're thinking about maximum conventional supports, we're thinking about lung protective ventilation. So patients who have severe hypoxia or severe hypercarbia on um, maximal lung protective ventilation strategies. So peak inspiratory pressures somewhere in the 30 to 35 centimetres of water range, peak between 10 and 20 generally, and usually high FiO2s. And when I'm talking about severe hypoxia, I'm really talking about patients who are achieving PaO2s in the 60 to 80 millimetre range on a, on a high inspired oxygen or severe hypercarbia, so 80 to 100 millimetres of mercury on um, as high a minute ventilation as can be achieved. I think one of the other things that's important is, um, is whether adjunctive therapies um, are appropriate for a patient or have been trialled and are ineffective. And those adjunctive therapies are, are things like prone positioning, um, keeping a fluid balance neutral or negative with diuresis or renal replacement therapy, and the use of selective pulmonary um, vasodilators, things like nitric oxide. Um, and then potential consideration of things like recruitment manoeuvres that may or may not be helpful for an individual patient. Just coming back to some of those indicators, you mentioned that age over 70 tends to be a, an exclusion criteria. What's that based on? Is that a, um, a resource capacity issue or is it more related to the likely outcomes of the patient? That's both, and it does depend where you work. In New Zealand, we generally have a more resource-constricted environment than many of the Australian states, but it's backed up by um, literature and registry data, in particular data from the Extracorporeal Life Support Organisation, which is a worldwide registry that many ECMO centres, not all ECMO centres, but many ECMO centres contribute data to. And um, really the numbers for VV ECMO do demonstrate that younger patients fare better in terms of survival from ECMO and survival at six months or one year out from ECMO. Um, those who are in the age of greater than 65 to 70 tend to have um, significantly worse outcomes um, and require more resource for those outcomes. And therefore, um, the approach with ECMO is more restrictive, but not entirely exclusive for that age range. The other one that you mentioned that piqued my interest was uh, about reversible lung disease. And some patients obviously get into um, a destructive type respiratory uh, disease state, such as necrotizing pneumonias. What's in your experience, what happens to these patients? Do they have good outcomes or are they uh, not eligible for, for ECMO? 
So this is a really interesting um, question, Todd. Uh, traditionally, I think our approach in New Zealand has been that patients with severe necrotizing pneumonias have much worse outcomes. But we've taken um, a much more thorough and detailed look at this in the last few years. Um, and in fact, uh, some literature is about to be published in this regard. Essentially, even those patients with severe destructive pneumonias may recover. And when we looked at our New Zealand data, we had 48% survival um, for patients who were placed on VV ECMO who had severe necrotizing pneumonias. Um, and none of those patients had late death. So really what that means is that um, they do have worse outcomes than patients with non-necrotizing pneumonias, of which the survival would be about 65 to 70%. Um, so they do have worse outcomes, but, but still a significant number of them surviving and none of them having late deaths. And what was very interesting is that for some of those patients um, with repeat CTs at six months or a year later, uh, complete lung recovery was seen in some of those patients. Um, and those really, you know, when I talk about destructive pneumonias, those were patients with pneumatoceles, lung liquefaction, segments of non-perfused lung. Um, so very interesting in terms of our traditional thinking about reversibility. Um, and we now realise that destructive pneumonia in and of itself is not enough to exclude somebody from ECMO being appropriate. It is definitely a marker of worse illness and reduced survival, though. Before a patient is transferred, often the um, uh, the patient needs to be maximised or, or optimised, I guess. Um, what are the sorts of strategies that you recommend before patients are ultimately transferred uh, to an ECMO centre? Um, so I'm going to move that back to having an early conversation, which I think is incredibly helpful. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, referring centres are many and varied in terms of their resources, the therapies that are adjuncts that they can provide and the staffing familiarity with those. Whereas most accepting ECMO centres um, have reasonably standardised approaches to managing severe respiratory failure. Um, and I think that most of the literature um, from the last 20 years has supported the fact that early referral for patients with severe advanced respiratory failure is helpful in and of itself, even if that patient does not eventually require ECMO. So I think in early discussion, that's the first thing that can happen. Then in terms of optimising those patients or doing as much as we can for them, um, I think the lung protective ventilation arts net strategies um, are well defined and those are helpful for uh, most patients with an ARDS. Um, other adjuncts that we would promote um, would be prone ventilation, the use of neuromuscular blockade, um, aiming for a neutral or negative fluid balance with diuresis or renal replacement therapy. Further adjunct therapies such as the selective pulmonary vasodilators such as nitric oxide may be helpful for some responding patients um, but are not um, usually the make or break for a patient. Um, 
traditionally recruitment manoeuvres have been considered. Modern literature suggests that doing those across the board is an unhelpful thing for patients. However, it may be that for a specific patient with demonstrated low bar collapse that manoeuvres like bronchoscopy and recruitment would be appropriate. So once again, I think that would have to be um, discussed and performed on a case-by-case basis. Sarah, as ECMO technology has improved, uh, the concept of retrieval on ECMO has become available. What is the general worldwide experience with this? Is it better to transfer somebody early and have them uh, uh, in a centre where ECMO can be commenced or later and have them transferred on ECMO? That's a really interesting and quite difficult to answer question. Um, And the reason for that is I think overall the international literature suggests that it is better to transfer a patient early when they can be safely conventionally transferred to a large centre that is frequent in managing advanced respiratory failure and has all adjunctive therapies available. Um, The tricky part of the question is that many patients deteriorate rapidly and are therefore in a a clinical condition whereby straightforward conventional transfer um, is difficult either to judge or to achieve safely. And therefore the question becomes, should they be placed on ECMO and transferred or should they wait at their current situation in case they have an improving trajectory? I think that is a lot harder to answer um, because um, waiting at the centre if they do start to improve may avoid ECMO altogether which is a very helpful thing Um, but uh, waiting too long might put them in further jeopardy so um, once again it does depend on the resources what I can say is that um, ECMO retrieval teams in Australasia and worldwide have become very practised and um, uh, it is a it is a modality that can perform be performed really safely um, by experienced teams travelling out to the referring centre um, and with specialised transport equipment. So it's certainly very well established. And um, in New Zealand, uh, the majority of our VV ECMO cases are transfers and retrievals rather than um, placed on ECMO in our centre. In a similar vein, and, and to conclude, uh, I'll ask you a somewhat controversial question. As ECMO is becoming more accepted as a therapy, uh, many many hospitals in that grey zone between a major quaternary centre in, in a metropolitan centre and a regional ICU are considering the option of adopting an ECMO service. What sort of numbers do you think are required uh, to maintain those skills in that area? And how do you see the proliferation of ECMO occurring across those sorts of ICUs? So I agree that um, as ECMO has become an established therapy, that there are more and more centres interested in providing that therapy. And we see worldwide very different approaches um, depending on jurisdictions and governance structures to managing that. Um, I practice in a place where we have one national referral centre and that is largely um, uh, very helpful in terms of patient outcomes as borne out by the literature worldwide. Large centres have better outcomes than low volume centres. Um, And it is very useful in terms of um, concentrating resource and expertise 
However, it does mean for some patients who may require ECMO in a very, very rapid fashion that if they are not in an ECMO centre, they may not be able to have that therapy provided. So that is the downside. Um, in terms of the numbers that are required, there are there is actually um, some data, um, uh, once again, provided by um, registries such as the ELSO data. And um, I wouldn't want to quote the numbers incorrectly for you, Todd, um, but really case numbers do need to be above at least 20 cases a year with ECMO. Um, and there's no doubt that over time, institutional experience and individual experience, um, as well as the governance structures that are set up around the NECMO program to regulate it, um, improve outcomes for patients. I think it's a question that individual jurisdictions will be grappling with for the next five to 10 years, most likely. And we're really likely in Australia to see, um, or in Australasia, to see some differences in approach from state to state and country to country, I suspect. We already do. Just to put that in context, what are the numbers that you're currently seeing at Auckland? So um, our ECMO service sees, um, has both adult and paediatric. So our paediatric service um, operates out of our paediatric intensive care. So our adult service we see between usually about 50 to 60 cases a year at the moment. Um, and that's a combination of VV and VA. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Todd. Um, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.